Thank you for listening to the Sunday School Teaching Ministry of Pastor Luke Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. Okay, well, good to see everybody this morning. I am happy and glad to be back in the saddle myself. Can you hear me okay back there in the back? Okay. (laughs) I also wanted to say it was a great time with Pastor Mike. I always am so blessed by his time here in the summer, just hearing him, being around him, and, and he always lights a fire in my heart. I know it's the Lord working through him, but and through our church, I can always sense it as well. But also for me, uh, during the summer, it provides me with a couple months where I really get to uh, spend more time organizing, planning, implementing, and uh, shoring up some things. And so I, a lot of times throughout the year, I'll say, I'll save that for the summer because I'll work on that in the summer. So I save up a bunch of things, and then while he's here, it gives me more time for that. So I really appreciate that time, too, and I think it helps in the ministry as well. But thank you, everybody, for... Uh, for just accepting him so well. He sends his greetings to you as we talked also this week. So glad to see him back at home and doing well. I'm, we're going to finish up First John here over the next few weeks, Lord willing, and then move on to a new study. But uh, let, I'm excited this morning in particular to talk about this subject, maybe one of the greatest subjects in all of the Bible, and that is love. Someone recently wrote that America is getting bored with love. And here's some of the things I read. Sadly, it seems like America's art and entertainment industry has rejected romance and sexual intimacy, and love has all but vanished from the popular culture. What, in 2014, the Journal of Advertising Research published a study documenting an odd decline in references to love throughout popular music. The word had fallen below phrases such as good time, and other sexually and racially vulgar words and phrases, uh, which were topping the hits in the two, uh, of the, are topping the hits of the 2000s. Music critic John Blake took notice seven years ago of how R&B, a genre that once gave the world Al Green, Aretha Franklin, all of that, no longer produced or broadcast uh, songs of romantic passion. And uh, film isn't much better, they say. Moviegoers are tired, one, one writer says, moviegoers are tired of romance on the silver screen. A, a writer from Washington Post declared that the rom-com or the romantic comedy is dead. Good. <laughs> and uh, th- they say, both articles, they attribute this lack of interest in love among the moviegoing public to shifts that now render the cliches of boy meets girl offensive. It's become almost cliche to read cutting-edge critics. They deconstruct these love stories, and, and they turn them into more predatory sexual harassment, things like that. And, uh, you know, we should redefine uh, all that, they say. Love is, people are bored with true love. I don't know about you, but when I was reading that and thinking about our culture, it actually makes sense. And I've had conversations with people in the culture about love versus or intimacy versus sex, really. What's the difference? 
people, it's getting harder and harder to find people who know what true love really is. But honestly, if you think about it, how could they? How could they? How could anybody know what real love is without knowing the source of true love? So today we're going to see what love really is. If there is a definition of love, it's going to be found in this passage. And if there is a source of love, it's going to be right here. It's going to be God himself. But first, I want to do a quick review so we can see where we're at in 1 John and we'll see what, uh, what John has been spending his time talking about in this letter, what God has told him to say. Remember, this is the old apostle, the old apostle John in his later years. He's been ministering and now pastoring in Ephesus. And he's dealing with a false doctrine that has creeped up in the church, Gnosticism, which has led the church into some turmoil. People start taking sides in a situation like that. People are believing these strange doctrines, and so they're talking and saying things and, uh, in, in, in private areas, and people are starting to shift and take sides. And so John has to deal with that. And so in that kind of a situation, what we see in this letter are two things come to the surface, the, the two themes that he really is writing about, and, and you can see why he would want those two themes in this kind of a situation in a church. The two themes are truth and love. That's what a church needs. There couldn't be two more important things for a church. There couldn't be two more important things for believers, truth and love. And in solidifying love, he clarified these central doctrines, doctrines of the identity of Jesus. Who is Jesus? The universality of sin. Everybody is a sinner. If you say you have sin, uh, or if you say you have no sin, you lie and do not the truth. He's, he also pointed out the truth of God's forgiveness for those who do sin. And the false teachers had really confused people. They claimed to be Christians, but their teachings were uh, not cr- true Christian doctrine. Um, they believed that Jesus was some kind of a phantom image. He wasn't God in the flesh. He, uh, he was just a spirit being. And because all matter is evil and spirit, uh, spiritual is, the spiritual is perfect, and so there's no way that the spiritual and the human and or matter could meet, and so God or Jesus wasn't God in the flesh. But this also led to unrestrained behavior because if, if the spirit and the body and matter are separate, then you can do anything you want in the body and it doesn't affect anything in the spiritual world or it doesn't, spec- it doesn't infect or affect your spirit. And, so, and they also believe that you needed to have some kind of a special knowledge or enlightenment, uh, like what we would call it, to be one of those special ones who understands this whole thing and what Christ is all about. And, and, uh, and all these different things played into the Gnostics' doctrine. So people were hearing that, and it was causing some doubt, and they were listening to their old pastor, John, and trying to listen to him, but then hearing this. And uh, they were wondering, you know, well, then what really makes a true Christian? What is it? How do I know if I'm even saved? If I, what's true? What's not true? And that's where John really lays things out. And in the book of 1 John, he really, in his talk about truth, he really tries to help people understand how you know if you really are born again, if you're really a Christian, there's going to be some signs. He gets very pastoral in that way, like a pastor saying, listen, let me help you. I know you're doubting. You have all these things in your head. 
let me help you understand. And what, he, what emerges are these three distinguishing marks of a Christian. One is the theological mark. You believe that Jesus was truly Son of God in the flesh. And he points that out. You truly believe what Jesus has said about himself and what he did on the cross. You believe that. If you truly believe that, you're born again. That's the promise of God. The other thing you can look at in your life is the moral mark, and that is, is there just a consistent obedience to God's commands? Do you love God's word? Do you want to obey it? And do you, do you find yourself obeying God's word? If that's the case, you wouldn't do that unless you had Jesus living inside of you. And then the last one is the social mark, and that is that you have just a, a love for other believers. There's just inside of you this new love that you've never had before. And if you see that inside of you, then you can know that Jesus is living in there and you're part of that family of God. And this passage is, is maybe in the Bible one of the greatest. This passage is one of the greatest passages about love that you're ever going to find, not only in the Bible, but in the entire world, because it is in the Bible. This is an amazing, amazing few verses here. Between 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, and 1 John 4, 21, 7 to 21, he uses the word love 27 times. Love, the word love, is used 45 times in 1 John. 1 John is a small book of the Bible, but it's used 45 times in only those five chapters, and that is more than any other book of the Bible, including Psalms or one of those big books. 1 John has love written more than any others. And it's always the word in 1 John, it's always the Greek word agape, agape, which is the highest form of love. And if you think about it, the gospel message to the world and the health of God's church is dependent on love. It's dependent on the love of us. It's dependent on the love of the saints. If we love each other, we're going to thrive. And we're going to grow in faith. And it's going to be a sweet thing. Every time we get together, we're going to build each other up. But if we don't love each other, it's going to be the opposite. If we love each other, we'll be more effective soul winners. If we love each other, we'll be better witnesses. If we love each other and keep encouraging each other, it's going to help every other area of our spiritual walk. Paul said in context of, of inside the church, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, all about love there, the famous love chapters, all in the context of a local church setting. And he said, now abideth faith, hope, and love, or charity, in the King James, and that is agape, these three. But what did he say? The greatest of these is love. Love is greater than faith and hope. So love, this is, it is the emphasis of the New Testament, it is the emphasis, and it should be the emphasis of our lives as well. So let's learn how to love this morning, okay? We're going to go through these verses. First John 4, verses, starting verse 7. And we're going to see the source of love, the source of love first. And here it is, 1 John chapter 4 and verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. Now, beloved, let us love one another, as it says there in verse 7. In Greek, it would sound like this. Those who are loved, let us love. <laughs> beloved, let us love one another. So, those who are loved, let us love. Only a beloved child of God 
can know and truly practice agape love. And it is because they are born of the God of love, as it says in verse 7. Everyone that loveth is born of God. Only a beloved child of God can do that. And that's the idea of these verses. Therefore, if you do not know God, if you are not a believer, you are unable to love to the fullest. You'll never be able to love another person like you could if you're a child of God. You might do a few loving acts, but it's never the deepest kind of love that we're talking about here. And by the way, this also means that if a Christian does not practice love, if we go against that inner drive, uh, that inner um, motivation that the Spirit is pushing us to love people, and we go against that, we're going against the nature of God, then basically we're acting like an atheist. We're not loving. There's also one of the most important statements in the, in the entire Bible in verse 8. It says, God is love. That's a very important statement. And someone has pointed this out, that it's amazing how many doors that that single statement unlocks and how many questions it answers in this life. In fact, it is the explanation of creation. God is love. Why should God create a world that was going to bring him nothing but trouble? Well, the answer is because God is love, and he wanted someone to love. Love must have someone to love and someone to love it. And then it's also the explanation of why God would give man free will. If God was only law, then he would have created a world where we, people are robots, having no more choice than a machine, but, but God is love. And so love, therefore, uh, needs a... Is, needs a free will for it to, to thrive, for it to actually exist. And God, by a deliberate act of self-limitation, had to give man a free will. And it's also the explanation of providence. If God was simply mind and order and law, he might have just created the universe, wound it up, and then set it going and left it. But God is love. So he cared for and gives constant care to the universe. And it's the explanation of redemption. It's why God chose to save people and send his son to die because God is love. It's the explanation of heaven and why uh, there's a life beyond this and why God would give us that because God is love. God is love. It's, it's extremely important doctrine to remember. It's about God. It's his essential nature. And it's, it's something that permeates through everything else he does. Even as, uh, as Pastor Tim talked about last week, even the wrath of God is, even in that, we see his love. Even in his justice, we see his love. Everything he does is because of love. Even his discipline, even if his chastening, whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. So what does it mean? What does love mean? What does agape mean? Before we settle on a definition, let's look at what these verses tell us, all right? Verses 9, and or we're going to see the definition of love. That's next. I looked like I went ahead. Verse 9, in this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So here is agape. It is God sending his only son to die in sinful man's place. 
In this, it says in verse 9, was manifested the love of God or the agape of God toward us because that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. So building a definition off of that, agape love would be a sacrificial giving for the sake of helping someone in need. And you could maybe add some things throughout scripture, but certainly it is that. Notice a couple things about that agape according to these verses here. God's love toward man, it holds nothing back. It says that God sent his only son. He held nothing back. If there was anything that God would hold back, it would be his son. But that is the one thing he did not hold back. And it is totally undeserved. It says, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. It's, that is a completely undeserved. It's not because, not like we were loving God, and he saw that, and he said, you know what? Because you've been so loving to me, I'm going to repay you by sending my son. No. It's the exact opposite. In spite of our treatment toward God, in spite of our disobedience, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So God's love valued the life it could give, as someone has said. God's love valued the life it could give above the cost it would require. And specifically, it says that Christ became the propitiation which means, that word means satisfaction or the legal satisfaction for the wrath of God. God is, it's interesting, this verse, by the way, is, uh, has both, again, the wrath of God and the love of God meeting. And it says God is love, God loves us, but at the same time, by using that word propitiation, it, it implies that God was angry. God is wrathful toward people, and yet he still loves us. Justice and mercy meet right here. But propitiation means the legal satisfaction for the wrath of God. Propitiation is actually the Greek word for the Old Testament mercy seat. The mercy seat was the part of the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies where the blood of the sacrifice, the lamb, was sprinkled once a year uh, by the high priest. He would go in there and sprinkle blood on there for the sins of himself and the sins of the nation. And what Jesus is saying is, uh, or God is saying is that my son came to be the mercy seat. He came to be the one, to spill his blood, to be the place where God's wrath then is poured out on, on him. That's where the blood comes in. At the cross, justice and mercy meet. And uh, great Bible teacher, Boyce, he said, if God had merely sent Jesus to teach us about himself, that would have been wonderful enough. It would have been far more than we deserved. If God had sent Jesus simply to be our example, that would have been good too, and we would have had some value. But the wonderful thing is that God did not stop with these, but rather sent his son not merely to teach or to be our example, but to die the death of a felon that he might save us from sin. This is a powerful thing. There is no, that's why there is no greater love than a man would lay down his life for his friends. This is what Jesus did for us. John could have used illustrations. Well, now, when you think about these verses here, God sent his own son. This is the example. This is the definition of love. God sending his son for sinful man. But you think about it, God, or, uh, John could have used a lot of different examples 
He could have used Peter's example of sacrificing for others. Paul, he was sacrificed for others. He showed great agape love. Even Jesus, uh, when he washed the feet of his disciples, what an amazing picture of, of agape love. And yet, John chose to set the, the standard and the bar as high as he could and give us the greatest example of love that has ever been given. Here is the example that God would send his son to die in our place. That is, that is sacrifice for those who do not deserve it but need it. So here's the implication based on that example, and that is the next verse, verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. You, just, you see what God did for you? You need to do that same exact thing for those other folks in the church. There it is, plain and simple. We have no choice. <laughs> we have no choice but to love one another. And this is the pattern of love. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. If, if that is what God has done for poor, wretched worms such as we, then it's pretty clear that God wants us to do that for other worms. If, if we could keep God's example, think about this, if we could keep this example of God in our minds and in our hearts, if we would, if we would ponder that, in the morning when we wake up, Jesus, thank you for your great sacrifice for me. I don't deserve your love, but you have poured it out on me because I needed it. That is just simple agape love. Imagine how the relationships between each other would change. Just having that in our hearts and having that in our mind, even on, with those people that it's especially the hardest to love. I want to give you just one example here in my own life. This is a momentous uh, story in my life. It was early in the ministry. It was about 20 years ago or so. I mean, so this is very long ago. And so it's none of the people in this room here, okay? But there was someone who was very hard to love for me. <laughs> Maybe other people loved him. I don't know who, but, but uh, it was very hard for me to love. And, and the reason was because there was a ministry decision that I had made, and this person after that decision just came after me with a hatred. And they came looking for me uh, at the office. Thankfully, I wasn't there at the moment, but then they called me and cussed me out. And, and um, after a few weeks went by, there was just no healing, and there was just so much turmoil. I could just, you could just feel it, and animosity. But I had heard a message about forgiveness, and this, this thing was just bothering me so badly. And... And, you know, he, the message he was talking about is if you really want to let go of something, if you really want to forgive somebody, what you need to do is you need to fill a need that that person has without them knowing that you're the one who fulfilled the need for them. This is agape. It's sacrificing to fill a need of, for someone. And so, and you have to make sure that it's a sacrifice to you. It needs to hurt a little. <laughs> it's agape. So I hated the thought of that. Um, that I would have to sacrifice for that person and that, that I would give them, help them in anything. <laughs> but I felt so convicted about it. And so I forced myself to do this. And I want to just say that it was not 
love <laughs> from my heart, if you know what I'm saying. It's not emo my emotions. It was not agape because I was just such a great Christian. It was forced agape. It was love because I felt like I had to obey God. But I will, g I am telling you the honest truth, as soon as I did that, there was a, it was a financial thing that we could do. And we were, we didn't have much money. But we gave till it hurt and we fulfilled a need we knew that they had. And as soon as I did, without them knowing, and I did, they still don't know who did it. But as soon as I sacrificed, the whole outlook on the, everything changed. I mean, it literally, it's like I dropped it in my head. And I, the sting of the wrong that they had done to me was just gone. I didn't feel it anymore. And, I, and, and there was like a compassion for this person. I saw them with pity and not with seething anger. And by the, by the way, just to follow up, years passed and, and one day they came and made it right with me. And, uh, and we actually have a great relationship to this day. And several people recently also have told me this is something different, but they, I've noticed a couple of things recently. They, they've said just how a simple loving text message and them sacrificing their own pride with somebody they were having some issues with and just sending a loving text message. Uh, has soothed just that volatile relationship. Listen, there's no better power on earth than when people are willing to sacrifice for another person. Uh, it's the most godlike thing, really, that we can do. It's agape. The best, uh, William Barclay said, the best demonstration of God comes not from argument, but from a life of love. I mean, we, can't, we don't even understand when Jesus washed the feet of his disciples how much, how big of a deal that was. And, how he, and remember, he washed the feet of the 12. That includes Judas. Judas. He, he knelt right down, down there in front of him and washed the feet of Judas. What an example. And then let's look at the perfection of love. Verses 12 through 18 give us this concept of perfect love or complete love. Let's look at that. Verse 12, no man hath seen God at any time if we love one another. God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. The point is here that no one can see God with their eyes, but when we become a conduit for God's love, then people begin to see God in a real way. It's like once I see somebody loving and sacrifice for another believer, then all of a sudden, You've just seen something of God. I, I can't see God with my eyes, but that's as close as I'm going to get. This is love being perfected or love being completed inside of a person. We're like a water pipe that's for God's love. And listen, if there's ever a clog in the water pipe, we need to get that thing clear so that we can love people. But when, I, when we love, it not only helps others see God in me, but it also helps me see God in me. And that's the next point. In other words, it gives me another point of assurance that I am saved. We're going to look at these few verses together here, starting in verse 13. Hereby know we that we dwell in him, and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love. And he that dwelleth in love 
dwelleth in God, and God in him. It's a lot of stuff, and you can take some extra time to really dig into that and read it, but I'm, I'm going to try to sum it up here. Here's the key idea. Through accepting Jesus Christ as Savior, we come into a relationship with God. That's one thing that's kind of brought out in the, those verses. But also when that happens, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us, or God dwells in us. And then, all of a sudden, through that, the, this fruit of love is, is, starts to build in our lives. This is uh, what Galatians calls the fruit of the Spirit. It's love. And that love becomes evidence that, that we're indeed dwelling in God and He in us. So the point here is that love is the expected mark of God's presence in a person's life. You would expect, and that's everybody around us knows, if there's a Christian, they're supposed to be the most loving people. Remember, one of John's main purposes in this letter was to help believers have confidence in their salvation. And true agape love for others is a sign that Jesus really does live inside of you. And one of the greatest illustrations of this really I could think of is the strong desire that we all felt to meet together in 2020. You know, there was those first few weeks where we, had, we didn't have church together and trying to figure this whole COVID thing out. And if, this pa- and if that time, I remember just people just feeling like, man, we need to get back to church. We, we crave it. We crave being together. God did not make human beings to be apart. He did not, and certainly not believers. He made us to come together, and there is a great love, and there is just like this undeniable pull to be in the fellowship. We crave it, and that is a sign of salvation. It's a sign that you're born again. And as we exercise this love, we're more and more confident that we truly are born-again believers, and that love is being perfected in us and being completed in us. Verses 17 and 18, look at this. Herein is our love made perfect. That's what he's talking about. That we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He He that feareth is not made perfect in love. Now, God doesn't want people walking around in fear that they may not be saved. He doesn't want anybody wondering, I wonder if, if I die today that I may not go to heaven. This is one reason I can't accept the doctrine that you can lose your salvation. Because Scripture clearly teaches that God wants people to be bold about the day of, of judgment. And if God wants us, every Christian to be confident in that, that means He's made a way for people to know. He's obviously made a way for people to be bold about that. And one way he gives confidence is through this perfect love or this complete love, this co- the love that he's completing in us, which in basic terms is speaking of the love that God has for us and, and which increases more and more to, in, to love to others. And I believe that's what he's saying in these verses. So my application of these verses would look like this. The person who has God's agape love in them and is sacrificing for others is the same person who is never going to be fearful about meeting Jesus on Judgment Day. You have that, you, you accepted God's love, and God's love is working through you, and you're loving people genuinely, and that love is building. You don't even think about Judgment Day. You're not concerned about that. You know Jesus is inside of you. you you're confident that when you stand before the Lord, you're going to be okay. Why? 
because you know that this love that's working through you could never have been worked up by yourself. It had to come from God, and therefore God is in me, and Jesus is there. Only he could plant that in my heart. When a Christian is living each day with, in gratefulness to God's love and is serving people and, and giving and doing all these things out of love, what a special thing it is. And it's, it's that love that is being perfected. And perfect love casteth out fear. John, the pastor, was saying, I don't want any of you to fear the, the day of judgment. Listen, you trust the Lord. Let his love kind of just fill you, and then you start just loving people and serving people, have agape toward others, and you're going to just sense and feel there is no fear in that last day. Just think about how you feel when you've been busy serving Jesus with the right attitude. So many of you have sacrificed energy, uh, all kinds of energy (laughs) and resources for people when we do Freedom Fest around here, for example. Or if you've sacrificed time to go out and win a soul and be out there knocking on doors or after you've given sacrificially. You know, every time we do that, uh, I know that the Holy Spirit, which is his job, he'll give us a pat on the back. We don't need a human to give us a pat on the back. No, the Holy Spirit will come along and say, good job, my child, good job. You've done the right thing. And it's because you've exercised love, you've sacrificed, and uh, you're not afraid God is going to judge you. In fact, you're just living blessed. You're saying, thank you, Lord. It's not, but you're not trying to do those things to get to heaven. No, it's because heaven has already come to you, and so you just, you just are filled with that agape love. Now, lastly, the motiv- that motivation is because I know that God loved us first. And as I just mentioned, practice, this is the practice of love. We love him because he first loved us. <laughs> That's pretty simple. The only reason anybody in here can love at all is because he is the initiator. And he gave his love to us first and revealed it to us. If a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? By the way, just real quick, it's not, it's not unloving to sometimes call a person a liar. John was not being unloving here. Sometimes you, there is such thing as tough love, if you want to call it that. It's just love. And, and love rejoiceth not in iniquity, 1 Corinthians 13 says. It rejoiceth not in, in, in iniquity, but it rejoices in the truth. And this is the commandment that we have from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. What a true principle. You can't be loving God and hating your brother simultaneously. can happen. Don't be coming in here telling me that you're such a spiritual person when there's a whole string of people behind you in life that you hate. If there's unresolved bitterness and anger toward, all, toward other Christians and you're living in that, I guarantee your relationship with God is not where it, God wants it and where it should be. Horizontal relationships affect our vertical relationship and vice versa. They're mysteriously intertwined. The way I love my wife, my children, and you, my church family, affects my spiritual life. A true Christian cannot fail to love and, then re- and remain in a good conscience. We all know how hard it is to have communion with God when our conscience is bothering us about an issue that we have with somebody else. Here's a good illustration. A Christian husband is at home. They're a good Christian family, husband and wife, but they start fighting. They're going at it. 
The neighbors can hear them. And the wife, you know, they're going at it, talking and, and all of that. And then they hear the baby. She's in the other room. And so uh, she goes to check on the baby in the crib. And she noticed this. She comes out looking very fearful. And she realized the baby is very sick. And they know in that moment that they need to pray. They need to stop and pray together for this baby. But they can't pray. Because there's just so much animosity in the room. There's so much pain and turmoil and all of that. And why? Why can't they just stop and pray? You, you know how hard it is to pray in that environment. Because there's a connection with our earthly relationships and our heavenly relationship. And you have to make it right. You have to, I'm sorry. We need to get past this. And then you can pray. Then you can go to heaven uh, in your prayers. You know, Jesus said something like that. Remember that. First make it right with them and then come and offer your gift. Speaking of marriage, I've often thought that this is the real answer to in, just any marriage issue, really. If we each see each other and love each other as God sees and loves the other person. If I see my wife as God sees her, I, man, I can work through anything. I can have agape. I can sacrifice and do what I need to do, and she can do the same. What a difference that would make if we would just simply do that. So today, here's what we've seen. Love is not an option, it's an obligation. It was commanded in verse 21 to love one another, which, by the way, and then it's also a response based on the love that God has given to us. And by the way, because of those two things, this excuse, I just can't love that person, that's invalid. <laughs> God just wiped it out, wiped it clean. Now, we don't have to like everybody. Uh, there's people who've done some, some deep, deep sins and hurts against you. It doesn't mean you have to go be their best friend all the time. But there is a love that's commanded here. And we need to search and ask the Lord what that is. If we're born of him, we're abiding in him, then the resources to be able to love are there. We can love people. And if it's commanded, then it's possible. And it's up to us to respond to his command with our will, with our whole being. As I end, I just want to say on a given Sunday around here at church, alone, just one Sunday this morning, there are going to be hundreds of moments of love. Hundreds of moments, if you stop and think about it. Formal ministries of people teaching, people serving, people doing things. But then there's all these informal ways of love that are just being tossed around all throughout the day. Words of encouragement, hugs, prayers, all these things, all because of love, all because of agape. And that's far more powerful than we realize. All those little things that, that you're doing, that we're doing together. That's why when an unloving attitude tries to creep in into our lives or into our church, boy, we've got to tear it down or it will tear down the work of God. I thank God for such a loving church as the home church. Love you guys. Lord, we praise you. We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.